0: and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey everyone. So as promised, this is another in our series of episodes talking specifically about grief in the time of the coronavirus. In this one, we focus on how the pandemic is affecting the folks who care for and support those in grief. For those who are used to spending their days listening to stories of loss and heartbreak, what happens when the entire world, including them, is facing disruption, uncertainty, and the potential for a surge in those affected by grief? How do they maintain their capacity to show up and be present? Today's guest has many years of experience in the world of witnessing pain and advocating for people in grief. Megan Devine is a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker who for the last decade has focused on supporting people in their grief and helping to educate the world on how to be a more hospitable and understanding place for grieving people to live in. Ten and a half years ago, Megan's longtime partner, Matt, died suddenly, and it turned her world inside out. Today, she is the founder of the website Refuge in Grief, author of It's Okay That You're Not Okay, and creator of the Writing Your Grief classes and online communities. Megan joined me on Thursday, March 26th to talk about what this pandemic is bringing up for her, for the people she supports, and her colleagues in the grief world. Two quick things to note, because this is a very wonky time that requires recording in places we normally wouldn't record, like on the floor of my home office, the sound is also a little wonky. And because the doggy daycare places have closed to keep everyone safe and healthy, Megan's dog Luna makes herself known once or twice throughout our interview. Okay, on to the episode. Megan, thank you so much for coming back on Grief Out Loud. I think this is your fourth time on the show with us. I think it is. And listeners, um, if you've been with our show for a while, you have experienced all the different ways that Megan and I have recorded together, including on my tiny iPhone in a living room, in her kitchen with the heater on, then in our more fancy studio in my office, and now from our individual pillow forts where we are in our houses, even though we only work and live maybe two, three miles away from each other, I think.
1: Right. We could almost do like the the telephone thing with the tin cans and the string between them. <laughs> That's probably the only method of recording a podcast we have not yet done. All right.
0: So Megan, you and I have been in contact a little bit in the last week and recognizing that we both work in the grief world. We're both in the role of supporting others, of having many colleagues who work in the grief world. And I think you reached out to me and you're like, what, what is happening? How are we holding this? How do we do that? And so it just made sense to have you come on the show. So I'm really glad that you reached out.
1: Yeah, me too. I mean, it's, it's the enormity of everything, right? And, and doing the work and knowing what we know about what it's like to be a grieving person even before uh, virus concerns. It's like, it's the enormity of it is really stunning,
0: And what I've been noticing, and I think you've mentioned this too, is prior to maybe a month ago, two months ago, we were in this very skewed sample of people who were experiencing grief in a world that maybe didn't understand or didn't relate or didn't respond in ways that maybe felt supportive. And now it's like the whole world has come into the room with grieving people and grieving people are still carrying the grief they had prior to this virus pandemic. So I'm curious, like, how are you relating to that idea? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you reflecting on around it? Hmm.
1: I think that's a, a really good angle there, sort of, that um, it's like the rest of the world came into the to the grieving room. So for the first couple of weeks as as virus news and the spread was unfolding, I didn't really see much in my grieving communities, um, in social media or in our group spaces, because grief was just happening. People were were losing their people and um, grieving and trying to find connection and support inside a a really bizarre and difficult time. And it's only been in the last week or so that we're starting to see more grieving people talking about being afraid that they're going to lose more people or, being the sole surviving parent and being concerned about their own health and what that means for their family moving forward. And also a lot of folks now saying to the rest of the world, sort of, well, welcome to grief. We've, we've been here for a while. We set up camp. It really has brought the rest of the world into an experience that grieving people have already been living.
0: And you have a really, well, your vantage point is from the perspective of having been someone whose partner died and then moving into this role of supporting people in grief and hearing their stories. And I'm, I'm curious what for you personally has come up with your grief and then this whole new world and situation we're facing. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. I mean, I'm coming up on 11 years since Matt died. It'll be 11 years this summer, which is mind boggling. I definitely have this sort of re-intensifying or resurgence of feeling alone in this, right? As a professional, but also as a human in the world with um, with concerns for my family members and concerns for my friends and concerns for my business and um, concern for, for everything, right? And not having that partner there to help hold that with me. So that's that's circled back for me a lot. And Matt, gosh, he was the man was always calm, <laughs> always like sometimes annoyingly calm. In fact, often annoyingly calm. And I could use that
0: mm.
1: right now. Another thing that's been really interesting for me is um, if he if there was some way that the man could have died, and then also saw what it was like for me and for other people who care about. Them, him to to live through to live through his death in the aftermath. I think it would have changed his perspective on a few things, right? Like he had some real opinions about what grief should be like and and what you should do with somebody's things and all of this stuff. and so i I would be really interested to hear um, how Matt's calm perspective on things, might have shifted or changed, right? Like I I think he could actually sometimes be arrogant in his calm. That's one of the things that I wonder now is like, how would he be interpreting what's happening? And how annoyed would I be with his calm perspective? Because I bet I would be annoyed. I bet that I would find it equal measures, comforting and irritating. And I've changed since he died. I wonder about that in what ways would we not know each other in this and in what new ways would we? And I think this is a sort of imaginative math that happens for grieving people, right? When your person is no longer here, what would they be doing? How, what would it be like to, to lean on them? What would it be like to be uh, isolating at home for the safety of others with my person? And I think that's actually a big thing that I see in my communities is a lot of folks who say I would give anything
0: to be annoyed at what a mess my house is
1: if my family were intact.
0: Yeah, I think about that idea. There's so I mean, there's so much out there right now on social media of people making jokes and, you know, being kind of funny about how hard it is to be home with kids and partners and spouses and cousins and grandmas and whoever people are. Pulling up with. And that's important for them. But then to think about that, that there's a bit of privilege in that to be able to complain about these people who are still alive and are still hopefully healthy and with them. Being a grieving person and having
1: somebody missing in your family and watching other people, right? All of these people on social media complaining about being on lockdown with their humans and how hard it is. And, and as you said, those things are valid. It is hard. And everybody gets to have... Their feelings about that. There was something that I hadn't even thought about. Um, you know, I I pay close attention to my my grieving communities and and watch what they're talking about. And it was a little bit the the virus conversations were a little bit slow coming in, but once they started, like the floodgates really opened. And one aspect I hadn't thought of um, had a mama talking about. So my kid is home now. I'm homeschooling because their school is closed, and we're all sheltering in place, and my child is bored, and his brother is dead. If his brother wasn't dead, he would have somebody to play with during the shelter in place, and I'm like, I didn't even think about that. I was thinking about sole parents. I was thinking about, you know, grandparents that you can't visit anymore, or, you know, you lost one of your parents. I wasn't even thinking about siblings, and just, for some reason, that one really got me.
0: I think every day there's been a new insight into how the grief is and could play out for people, like whole other levels that show up for me every day. And each one sort of like whacks me in the back of the knees. And just thinking about people out in the world, each day having that as well of like, yeah, you know, we're dealing with just like the normal day to day, like, okay, how am I going to get groceries? How am I going to file for unemployment if that's happening? How am I going to be working from home dealing with the logistics? And then wham, there's like an emotional sucker punch. And everything has a ripple effect. There are those discussions about like, how am I going
1: to manage this if my partner is gone? Like now I'm a sole parent. There's, there's always the logistics of life to figure out. And then with what's happening with the virus, it adds that whole other layer to everything. And I I get you, like every time I realize yet another layer to things, either in pre-existing grief or the grief that's unfolding, it is that emotional whack to the back of the knees. And I I think that also brings up an important thing that I really see happening. So in regular grief, right, in in pre-existing, pre-virus grief land, support can be hard to find. Right. Like friends and family have good intentions and they they try to show up for you. But now everybody is scrambling and resources are stretched even thinner. So for grieving people who already maybe felt that the support they were getting wasn't quite enough. They probably just lost even that. Mm. Right. Because each individual family now has to be in triage mode. How do I homeschool? How do I manage this? How do I get the dog out for a walk if it's not safe in my neighborhood to take a walk? Like so many different elements coming up sort of absorbing the available bandwidth.
0: Yeah. And to think, I had to think about grief, you know, people who are grieving, they're already pretty maxed out in terms of their bandwidth. And then they have friends who have been showing up for them in the ways that they can. And now those people maybe are getting maxed out in bandwidth and like, who's left? <laughs> Exactly. Who's left going into the grief professional brain
1: here. There's a lot to think about in what information do people need? How can I best be useful in all of these different aspects of grief? Um, The ways that the ways that grief existed previously, the new ways that it's happening now, like how can I be most useful? And the two people that I tend to bounce ideas off of and strategize with their families are in complete meltdown mode for various reasons, and I, I'm not going to go to them. I'm not going to lean on them because they have nothing, and it is my job to support them in whatever ways I can. And I can do that. You know, that, that beautiful ring theory, right, that I always go back to, comfort in, dump out. Mm. Well, the people that I normally dump on and with, they, they can't do that, and I'm not going to ask them to. And that leaves me with like, but wait, where do I go now that my strategists need comfort instead of being of comfort? And I think that these are questions that so many of us have to ask now. Like, wait a minute, I need to be here for this person, but where am I going to go because I'm also struggling?
0: I know for me, I like I'm so grateful to be part of the Ducky Center and watching the way that as an organization we're trying to recalibrate and figure out how are we going to best be there for our current families, our volunteers? How are we going to be there for future families that need our services? So I'm really grateful we have like a team that's working so hard on that. And I've been seeing so many other grief support programs around the country and around the world also getting really creative and innovating and and offering online support and social media support, and so I think, oh, phew, the outer ring looks pretty secure yes. <laughs> right now. <laughs> From the grief outer support. ring is running, yeah, yeah. But for you know, for you as a kind of a, you work with a team, but you're pretty much an independent person in this grief world who's also carrying your own grief. What What's helping you? Like, what is helping you get to that place where you can show up for other people and keep showing up for yourself? Uh, breaks
1: one of the things that helps me the most and always have always has in times of overwhelm or chaos is um, information and structure. And the information piece right now is really tricky. This is not the best time for me to know what I know. I can think of so many difficult, challenging aspects that I can very easily get flooded. And that's not helpful. So sort of putting really clear parameters around what information I take in and I'm not just talking about news I'm talking about how much awareness of pain I can allow myself I have a really deep capacity for witnessing pain in others I've learned doing this work that that capacity is not limitless I thought it was
0: it's not it's not and how do you take those breaks? Like, I love that concept of like, I take a break from witnessing the pain of others, but like, how do you concretize? Like, how does that work? <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's a work in progress, right? Like, I definitely do not have it down yet. I feel like I had it more or less down pre-virus, right? Because I've been doing this work for long enough. I, I've put a team in place so that the, the load is more dispersed. I have focused on strategy. What are the things that are gonna be most useful now and what are the steps that we need to take to get out there? What's the message that needs to be in the world? What, what do people most need to hear and how are we gonna create systems and structures around that to get that message to the world? Like That's order, right? Like That's order and structure and it really is very soothing. And then we throw this into it and it's like, well, okay. The order and the parameters that I have put in place to protect my capacity to bear witness—they um, need some sandbagging. They need some reevaluation, and and it's definitely a work in progress right now. And what I've found so far is useful is setting workday parameters. I am not allowed to start working before I get out of bed. <laughs> that might seem like a silly thing, but literally, my office is next to the bedroom. And it's very easy. I mean, I I very often wake up working. That's not unusual. But I'm making myself stop it. (laughs) I'm making myself play with the dog, who's very happy to play. So basically putting a boundary around start time. And one of the good things about having my dog home with me and not in daycare is that she forces me to go outside she she's really good she'll she'll sleep for like a good solid two hours and then she gets up and she's like all right we got to go do something and that makes me step away from it for a minute so that's that's helping some enforced breaks both one enforced by the dog and the second attempting to enforce them to myself because honestly probably twice just in this last week I've Clocked a twelve and thirteen hour day, and I stopped being useful around hour six, right? But that that drive, that need to wait. No, people are suffering. We need to do something. I need to do something. There. So it's it's like becoming aware of that pressured urgency, that feeling overwhelmed with the need, making me forget the rules and boundaries and structures that help me meet that need. And so coming back to my roots, like eating, drinking, sleeping, moving my body in the ways that I can and walking away, I cannot tend to the pain of the world all at once, even if I want to.
0: It sounds so familiar to the suggestions and support that As professionals working with grieving people, we're providing to participants and clients. Take breaks, attend to your physical needs, put up some boundaries. And now as professionals, we need those as much, if not more so than we ever have. And so that we can keep showing up and being there for other people. Yeah,
1: I think that we get familiar with a level of pain that the rest of the world isn't familiar with, and I didn't phrase that very well, but I think about, uh, like, when I open up a new community space, so, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of pain stories, and my my team is really familiar with a lot of pain stories, but, like, a new a new person comes into one of our groups, and suddenly there's all this pain on the page, and they come from a place in their lives where maybe they haven't been allowed to talk about what's going on for them, and then they suddenly come into this group, and it's like, all right, everybody's talking about it, And it's like drinking from a fire hose. And so I feel like as professionals, speaking for myself, but also my friends and my colleagues, like we are accustomed to a certain level of fire hose. And what happens when your normal level of fire hose suddenly becomes an even bigger hose? It's like, I think you're right. I mean, I think we go back to the same things that we tell our audiences and our clients and our groups, right? Back to the basics. This is how we deal with emotional overwhelm. This is how we deal with way too much all at once. It does remind me a lot of the early days after Matt died. You need a strategy. You need to know what is in front of you and do that one thing and then the next one thing, but you cannot think about all of it at once. Right? That that thing that I remember I did and I see grieving people do with like, how am I going to survive this in the next months and weeks and and years? And you
0: can't. Well, and we're in we're in such a unique situation now where we really can't predict what's going to happen. There's I mean, this is I mean, it's not unprecedented to have a pandemic, but it is unprecedented mostly in most of our lifetimes of what is this going to look like globally, countrywide, locally, personally and yeah. Like what a great reminder of all we can do is like, what's the next thing? What's the next thing?
1: Yeah. And this is uncertainty on a much grander scale than the uncertainty we we typically live with. And, you know, what are the tools for uncertainty? They certainly aren't um, positive thinking. They certainly aren't like those platitudes. I think about like, you know, some of the some uh, grieving folks I know who are like, wow, Now that I am a grieving person, I'm horrified by some of the things that I've said to friends of mine who might have been grieving. Like, I can't believe I said those things. And I wonder how much of that might be happening on a wider scale now as people are like, I'm in a lot of pain and people are telling me to buck up or it's not as bad as you think. Mm. And like now a lot more people are on the other side of the equation. It makes me really curious about what's going to change in the ways that we talk about grief because so many more people all at once are feeling it.
0: Yeah, it's like a global grief education happening.
1: Exactly. So there is an opportunity for people who have been in the trenches doing the work to open new conversations about grief and new conversations about pain. Like now, now is a great time to be having these conversations because the need is so vast and the interest is there.
0: In those conversations, I'm curious, are there like tangible things you're hearing both from your colleagues who are grief professionals and from grieving people in your audience of like w- what's something they're needing and something that's working to help them navigate this time? Mm.
1: So, I, the answer is the same for both with slight slight shifts, slight shifts. So, for for grieving people, I mean, the foundations haven't changed, right? What they need is acknowledgement and a place to talk about what's going on for them. That need for community is just intensified. They need to be able to um, talk about how hard this is with a new new weight or new new things that have added to their grief. I'm, I'm also seeing, like, there is still very much a need for that basic grief validation adding that extra circle right to things with let's talk about how this pandemic is affecting your grief what's different there i mean I think asking good questions is something that's really important for for grieving people during all of this so i'm seeing just intensified needs for acknowledgement and to hear that they're normal right? And finding ways to connect. I think that's the big new thing is that whatever support people had um, is drying up or getting more sparse. And so they're looking for more ways to connect. And I think there's a bigger frustration level happening for folks um, because they they have lost their support systems, whether that was an in-person support group or friends and family who were doing their best to check in. And then in the professional world, Same foundation's different application the need for acknowledgement, the need for validation that we can't unknow what we know. And for a lot of us, um, we see a wave of grief coming that is just unfathomable. And that is really daunting. Um, Not even just deaths coming from the virus, but the compounded grief happening with, um, you know, people who are losing someone now. We can't do the the rituals that um, decrease somebody's suffering. We can't have funerals right now in this time. And it's not that having a funeral makes the pain of losing somebody any less, but it can increase your suffering because you don't have, nobody's bringing casseroles, right? Like nobody's gathering for a wake or a memorial where you get to hug and touch people. And so as professionals, knowing what the loss of that, those touch points, the loss of that community in those early days, how that increases suffering for grieving people. I think right on cue, Luna's, Luna's whimpering, sort of <laughs> as my, my counter, you know, like my, my um, underscoring here, my, my emotional underscoring coming from the dog. But uh, I think as professionals, again, like we know the importance of those support touch points and knowing that they can't happen right now, I think myself and many others are sort of bracing for increased suffering. And then we've got the folks on the front lines, the the folks who work in the funeral professions and medical examiners and certainly our friends in palliative care and hospice. Man, I mean, the grief that is unfolding for our allies and colleagues on those front lines is immense and they don't have time right now to tend to their own needs they can't because they're they're in triage lockdown mode they are in chaos mode and just doing the best they can to show up and the pain that they're carrying because of what they see and then we've got the the concerns that they have for their family members, or maybe they can't see their family members because they're doing their best to stay away and protect them. Like the ripple effect of grief, both for their patients and clients um, and the communities they serve, and then their own grief that they're caring about their own families, like just layer upon layer upon layer. And I come back to acknowledgement is the best medicine we have, right? Like. This is the stuff that gets me. An acknowledgement is the only medicine I feel like we have for any of this, is to say I see you and I, I'm i sorry, this sucks. It's not enough, but it's what we've got. And I, you know, I, I close a lot of my talks, especially to the medical profession, I close a lot of my talks saying um, acknowledgement isn't gonna change anything but maybe it changes everything.
0: Well, and it certainly doesn't make anything worse.
1: It doesn't make anything worse, right? Like validation is what gets us through, right? If you have to pretend that things aren't as hard as they are, that increases your suffering, right? It means something to be able to say to somebody, I see how hard this is, or it seems like it would be really difficult worrying about your family when you're having to show up and tend to people who are dying alone because their family can't be there. Do you want to talk to me about it? Do you want to tell me about it? Do you want
0: to tell me about a patient you sat with today? Well, and Megan, I'm, I'm wondering because our, our listeners today are getting a small window into your pretty phenomenal skill at acknowledging and validating and showing up and witnessing pain and grief. And for people who maybe aren't as familiar with you and your work, what's the best way for them to get more, get more of you, get more of your acknowledgement?
1: <laughs> so the um, there's a couple of best places to find me. So the Refuge in Grief website is a place, uh, it's sort of like a a library of grief information it's the place to go to find out if uh, what you're experiencing is normal and sort of spoiler alert here everything you're experiencing is normal um, but the the blog has a lot of information around grief and and weird interpersonal conversations and what to do about them um, so the the website is a great place to find a lot of information the other place to um, get sort of more interactive stuff or to connect with community is on our Instagram. And that is at refuge and grief. We're going to be doing some Instagram lives and some other video stuff on that platform, um, especially during this time to, to connect people and reach out and the best place to find community with other grieving people always, but especially during this time when maybe you are um, friends and family or other supports aren't as available is the writing your grief course and community. And you can find more information about that on uh, refuge and grief on the website, but also on social media. Cause we talk about it a lot there, but that, that community is amazing. It's um, it's a place where people can come together and really tell the truth about what grief is like for them. Um, sometimes for the first time. The, the validation and the support from that community is pretty amazing. So we always encourage grieving people to check it out.
0: Well, listeners, now you know where to go if you're looking for, you know. some, for extra support during this time or any time, really. And Meg and I just want to thank you for you know reaching out to me, because I think making those connections, if we are in the professional world, talking to each other, checking in with each other means a lot. And then also for coming on the show today to share your knowledge and your insights and some recommendations for our listeners who are carrying grief and caring all that's coming with this coronavirus pandemic. So thank you for making time today. And please, extra pets to Luna for her joining us on the show today, too.
1: (laughs) Both of us are always glad to hang out.
0: (laughs) And listeners out there, thank you for being part of our community. I know I say that every time, but I really, really appreciate you being there to tune in, to listen, to share the show with people who might uh, be helped by it. And if you are needing additional resources specific around how do I carry my grief during all that's happening with the COVID-19 health crisis, please go to our website, dougy.org. We have new tip sheets coming out all the time, podcast episodes. You can email us. You can call us. We're here. We're in that outer loop, you know, that outer ring that Megan and I talked about. So we're here to support you. And if you want to support us because we are... Produced by the Dougie Center. It's a nonprofit. We're 100% community funded. If you are in a place where you would like to help support this show, we make it real easy. You can go to Dougy.org forward slash grief out loud. There's a large blue button. You can click that, and it'll uh, allow you to make a contribution to our show if you'd like to. And I mentioned this, uh, in the last episode, I have a new email griefoutloud at loud at Dougie.org. You can send me an email directly. I'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time.